It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios, welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. And you still like me or you you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. (laughs) I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, Longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth. In America, wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Cindy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. But I know we're talking about Lent. Um, for Christians, it's extremely important. It's an extremely important holiday. Easter is the reason. It's the most important holiday. And leading up with Lent, uh, the whole point of it is fasting and preparation. And for me, fasting has always been important. I have fasted when I made big decisions in my life. Um, but the reason it is to get humble. The Bible says in Psalms is fasting creates humility. And humility helps you hear from the Lord. And right now, as we prepare for Easter, Jesus died on the cross for the whole world, the entire world that we may have eternal life. It is a gift. It was given by grace. We can't earn it. It's nothing we can do. It was a gift from God, His Son, Jesus Christ. And I want the whole world to know that. And that's why I prepare in Lent with fasting with my own family. But I'm praying right now and fasting for Ukraine. We prepare this Easter holiday season wanting them to know that Jesus Christ loves them, even in Ukraine, even during all this conflict. That's why Samaritan's Purse goes in crisis like this, is to love on our neighbor. We don't do it for good works. Um, We don't do it because it's the right thing to do. We do it because God commands us, but we want them to know the love of Jesus Christ and what happened on Easter. He's risen. He's not in the grave. He's alive. That was Edward Graham on Fox and Friends. And I think he must be Franklin's son. I'm not sure, but I think so. Uh, And that's the first time I've seen him or heard his voice. Uh, And what a wonderful reminder. And I sort of wanted to listen to it myself again this morning uh, and remind you in the process of the season that we're preparing for. Uh, as we watch all the news, we are preparing to remember the, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, the miracle that that was, uh, you know, the, the thing that gives us all hope, uh, that we will live again, that our bodies will be restored. All those people in Ukraine who trust and love him, what an incredible and important Easter this will be for them. And also in the process, I wanted to bring to your attention Samaritan's Purse. It's just my personal uh, favorite um um, group that helps people overseas. It's a group I trust. I've trusted them for years. And I just wanted to say, if you want to know what you can do for Ukrainians, you know, Samaritan's Purse is a wonderful place that you can trust to give your money. Edward went on to talk about his recent trip to Ukraine, and it was very compelling. And he talked about the work of Samaritan's Purse there. And I wanted you to hear it. This is clip seven. Uh, to be there and see it in person it's hard to watch. Um, I was at the, even the train station in there in Lviv, and you're watching thousands and thousands of people uh, fleeing. The border alone, the, the traffic, the car line was 17 kilometers long when I was there. The human line was over two kilometers long. These people are staying days out in the cold, freezing, trying to get out of there. And I've seen a lot of cold weather injuries, um, a lot of exhaustion, a lot of stomach problems. And these people are just struggling and they're scared. Um, but for me, it felt like it should be in black and white. I'm at the train station. I'm seeing these noises, these people coming off mm-hmm. the train noises. But it seems like the old World War II films wow. where we saw people fleeing Nazi Germany. No movement. They haven't had a movement like this in Europe since World War II. 
Yeah, we immediately responded. We've been there for about 17 days on the ground. We had our assessors go in, but we've set up a tier three surgical hospital in Lviv, and these will help treat people that are um, fleeing the conflict, but also that have battle injuries. But we also saw the need for a step-down clinic at the train station, and these are assessing cold weather injuries, uh, treating heart attacks um, from just people overwhelmed by the trauma. We've already treated between there and our clinic in Moldova at the border there, over a couple hundred patients just in the last few days. Our tier three clinic will be operational today. It's set up, but as we expect possibly the capital in Kiev to fall, more and more of these trauma patients will be pulled back to Lviv. Eventually Lviv would probably become the capital. Um, if Kiev falls, it will be the new political capital and everything would be pulled back there. So that's what we set up in preparation. But today uh, we'll be already seeing people, surgical patients come into that facility. All right. Again, that was Edward Graham. And I, again, I believe he's Franklin's son. I want to look that up, you guys. Uh, but um, yes, he is Franklin's son. He looks, he looks and sounds like Franklin a bit. And, you know, never seen him before. It's just kind of amazing. So uh, he's speaking on behalf of his dad. You know, Franklin got very sick. Um, um, yeah, he, I think, uh, look, I shouldn't probably say this publicly without knowing, but, you know, Franklin was all in on the vaccines. And I think, I would distinguish, I gave a report to you a couple of weeks ago about uh, how evangelicals had been bought off to push the vaccines, the mandates, and I do not put Franklin in that category. Um, I think Franklin, you know, he genuinely believed in what Donald Trump was doing and supported him, and so did I, and do. Yeah, so um, Franklin, I think, in an effort to help the president was— and also to diffuse what seemed to be misinformation by evangelicals early on, reasons why they wouldn't take the vaccine that didn't seem uh, logical to Franklin or intellectual. And I think he wanted to kind of set an example, so he took it early on. And then I think he had some complications, and I think he's—I don't know how—I don't know if he's well now or not, but some heart problems. And so um, just saying, I want to distinguish. I don't think that Franklin—it's not, you know, I don't think that Franklin took any money <laughs> to promote this. And it's really kind of a sad situation. So maybe Edward has stepped in to, to speak for Franklin right now, and I'm glad for that. So there you go. Uh, and speaking of compassion, uh, we talked with Julie Kelly last week about January 6th, and I wanted to give you some updates. Uh, Julie uh, had gone, uh, as soon as she left us, she was going to go uh, be part, uh, at least an observer, of the trial in Michigan against the guys who supposedly were going to try to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer. You may remember this. Uh, before I get to that trial, though, uh, an update on Guy Reffitt. He was, we mentioned him last week, uh, but he, in his trial, he was found guilty of all five felony charges. And those charges, listen, they were civil disorder, obstruction of an official proceeding and aiding and abetting, entering and remaining in a restricted building or grounds, entering and remaining in a restricted building or grounds with a deadly or dangerous weapon, obstruction of justice, hindering communication through physical force, or threat of physical force. Now, two of those allegations, they're including a deadly or dangerous weapon, uh, from my understanding, have not been proven. And that's, that's what was presented in court. And the reason they got away with this is because uh, they wired Refit's son, who, who turned against his dad, uh, took the wire and recorded conversations that Guy Reffitt had in the privacy of his own home. And that was uh, pretty much the major evidence against him. I don't know the details of what that was, but when do we ever do that in our country? 
you know, even wives are not forced to testify against their husbands, but they, they found the son. I, I don't know anything about the son, but does anybody have a son or a daughter who's rebellious or doesn't agree with you on issues or maybe is woke and you're not? I don't know. I don't know if that's the case, but I believe there are a few. Uh, but that's what that was the evidence and the prosecutor, the defense. They did not let uh, Guy Reffitt get on the witness stand. He did not say a word. And his attorney called absolutely zero witnesses. There were no, there was no defense. So the jury is hearing all of this evidence, so-called evidence against Guy Reffitt, and now he is going to be serving, I think, up to sixty years. Uh, the daughter, they decided not to put her on the witness stand. Her name was Peyton Reffitt, and um, as as a matter of fact, uh, she said, "My dad," she said, "I never felt threatened by my father." This is according to Gateway Pundit interviewing her. My dad has never touched us once in our lives. It hurts me so much that they're saying that. The only way he disciplined us was through yelling and sometimes even pretending he was mad. He was beaten by his dad as a kid and is against that. He would never hurt us. But she was never allowed to get on the stage. And so they produced all this stuff. It's just um, horrible from my perspective. Just incredible injustice. And then on the Whitmer trial... Uh, This is, I'm going to have to make this uh, concise, but let me commend to you an article that's longer, uh, written by Julie Kelly after she watched the trial, and the title is Stoned Stoned Crazy Talk, Not a Plan, Say Whitmer Defendants. Um, And Julie, in short, uh, says that District Court Judge Robert Jonker wanted to delay presenting the trouble of evidence at the trial for as long as possible, and by by that she meant... The defense is showing that the FBI is the one that organized and orchestrated this whole thing, leading along these guys that really had didn't even have the wherewithal to do what they have uh, uh, accused them of doing. I'll give you an example here. The militia group, and that's in quotes, that plotted to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, Dan became the head of Wolverine Watchmen, the group allegedly responsible. Steve headed the Wisconsin militia. Jenny headed the Tennessee militia. They were all FBI informants. So um, you've heard this before. It's not news to you that the FBI seems to have orchestrated that little kidnapping plot. Uh, and then we're co- recording the whole thing, setting up the whole thing, financing the whole thing. It's just, it is shocking. And the judge, again, District Court Judge Robert Jonker, tried to delay the defense's evidence about the FBI's involvement. Uh, but Julie reports that they, it became clear during the opening statements that the defense could not argue their case without explaining the deep involvement of the FBI's confidential human sources. So Yonker refer- reversed his ruling, telling the jury it won't be possible to draw a line between the government proving their case and entrapment. And so they had all kinds of people, including FBI agents, um, a wit- on the witness stand. And one person uh, who was observing all of this said it was just stoned crazy talk, not a plan. And so um, the the question that Julie asks, and it's a good one, what did Bill Barr know? What did Chris Ray know? And what did Gretchen Whitmer know? The FBI actually installed a poll camera at Whitmer's cottage. Did she know that? She probably did, probably gave them permission to do that. It's like they're going to film the whole thing. Uh, so it's, it's – uh, and then along with that comes this story – that we've talked about, about the pipe bombs that were placed at the RNC, the Republican National Committee, and the Democratic National Committee on um, uh, January the 5th. That was the day before uh, January 6th, as you recall. 
And so these pipe bombs were caught in some sort of camera, and they hit somebody, you know, supposedly the planter of the pipe bomb, sitting on a park bench, very leisurely-like. But the FBI can't seem to figure out who in the world, who did that, and how that pipe, how those pipe bombs got there. And what we think, I mean, say we, my friends and I, and other people that are writing, think, you know, this is a little suspicious. Like they were setting the stage for what they were going to do on January 6th, which was incite and try to make it sound much like in the Gretchen Whitmer plot that people were trying to, to uh, execute a, a, an insurrection, which they didn't. And there's no proof of that. And the government has not been able to use that charge at all, but the headlines certainly use it. They repeat it over and over again. So in preparation to kind of soften the ground with media and to kind of prepare you and prepare ABC and NBC and CBS and CNN and Newsweek and, you know, Washington Post and the New York Times uh, that, uh, you know, those patriots uh, that support President Trump, uh, they come to Washington, they're, they're going to, you know, they're trying, they're there to call, to uh, to begin an insurrection. And so that's where how the narrative began. But there's an FBI whistleblower who has weighed in to say that, well, you know what, on those pipe bombs, it looks as though, uh, according to what I've experienced in the field office where I work, uh, that they really never really investigated that. They're just now asking agents to kind of look into it. And so it makes one think that it was a setup. And the question again is, what did Christopher Ray know? What did um, Bill Barr know? And uh, why has the January 6th committee not interviewed Chris Ray? I mean, this is uh, the whole thing about January 6th. The FBI agents were involved. The whole uh, big guy, Ray Epps, uh, who was, you know, inciting the crowd to go into the Capitol with a bullhorn. He's all over the place. He's there whispering in the uh, ear of the guy who was the first person to tear down the barricades going into the Capitol. Uh, and nobody knows who Ray Epps is. And when the FBI always ask about him, at a, uh, it was a, uh, I think it was a Senate hearing uh, a couple of months ago. The FBI uh, representatives of the FBI didn't know. They ca- I can't say. I cannot tell you who Ray Epps was. I'm not sure. Well, uh, as far as you know, we're in the. I think, uh, I think um, Senator Cruz is the one that asked this question. Can you tell me how, how many FBI agents were present? Uh, that day, um, no, I, I'm you know, not allowed to. I'm not able to say that. I'm not able to answer that question. It's just, if we had a real justice department, this these kinds of shenanigans would never go on. They would never go on. But that's what's happened, and that's the follow-up. Uh, coming up next, we're going to talk about that justice department, and you won't want to miss this discussion. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. This February, you can share heartbeats for the preborn. The Ministry of Preborn's mission is to rescue preborn babies. You see, every heartbeat proclaims our Creator's name. And when a mother considering abortion hears that heartbeat through ultrasound, the message is loud and clear. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. Preborn cries out for the preborn through heartbeats while supporting moms in crisis nationwide. When an expectant mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, it's a divine encounter, and 80% of the time, she'll choose life for her baby. To find out more, go to preborn.com, that's preborn.com, or dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say baby. Your love can save a life. This is Pause to Pray. 
a chance each day to stop down from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today, we pray for Geraldine Richmond, Undersecretary of Energy for Science and Innovation at the Department of Energy. She monitors research and development and advises the Secretary on our country's national laboratories. Proverbs 19.20 reminds us of the importance of wise counsel. Listen to advice and accept discipline, and at the end, you will be counted among the wise. Right now, with this in mind, let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask for guidance for Geraldine Richmond in her role as science and technology advisor. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pause to Pray is the service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team. Get your 2022 prayer guide and make this the year of prayer. Available now at pausetopray.org. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Starn. Stand by for news and commentary next. No matter your career goals, you want to find a university that provides excellent academics and state-of-the-art facilities at a price you can afford. At Liberty University, they believe a quality Christian education should be available to everyone. That's why they've frozen their tuition rates through the 2021-2022 academic year and offer multiple scholarships, like the Middle America Scholarship, to bring that price point even lower. Learn more by texting STARNS to the number 49596. Stacey Phillips is the mayor pro tem of Huntersville, North Carolina. She's also a radical pro-gay activist. The other day, Ms. Phillips posted a disturbing message on her Twitter account. She invited children who may be struggling with LGBT issues to reach out to her privately. She said she would be proud to be their auntie. It's a little creepy, folks, the sort of behavior one would expect from a predator or a pedophile. But it's the latest in a disturbing trend of LGBT activists putting themselves between parents and kids. Notices were posted the other day at Eau Claire North High School in Wisconsin inviting kids dealing with gender issues to ignore mommy and daddy. If your parents aren't accepting of your identity, I'm your mom now. That's the message one teacher shared with a student. Hashtag free mom hugs. Remember that now viral anthem performed by the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. They're coming for your children, America, and they mean it. I'm Todd Starnes. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Getter or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. I supported his policies. I was very conscious of his uh, personal failings, especially his pettiness and his his temper when he's not getting his way, his disposition to listen to what, you know, want to hear what, what he wants to hear. Uh, but up until the election, I felt that if you had strong cabinet secretaries who were willing to do battle, you could keep things on track. And I personally felt uh, that we did a pretty good job of that. But after the election, um, I, there was no, he just went off the rails. He wasn't listening to any of his normal advisors. He was listening to this coterie of people who were telling him that he lost the election. Well, you're definitely right. I mean, that he, that he was stolen. That he was yeah. right, exactly. Yeah. That was the voice of Attorney General Barr. Since I just talked about him, I thought we'd just listen. He just did an interview with Jake Tapper. <laughs> Very interesting. A lot of things he said. We pulled uh, several clips from it. But uh, obviously he's distancing himself. He just wrote a book, Distancing Himself from President Trump, and rightfully so because um, I'll tell you why. It's a matter of survival uh, because the not long knives are out for any attorney who supported uh, President uh, Donald Trump. 
Uh, I want to talk about that with our next guest, plus a million other things, so this will be an interesting challenge. Mike Davis is probably not a name familiar to a lot of you, but he is a a rock star in in Washington, D.C. and around the country for those people that are following all things judicial, what's happening at the Justice Department. Mike is the founder and president of the Article 3 Project, and he's the former chief counsel for nominations to the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, when Chuck Grassley was the chairman. And uh, what does that mean? That means that uh, Mike was the one who ushered through all of those nominations of really fine judges uh, that President Trump appointed, and that includes the um, the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. No one can forget, can they? What kind of a circus that was? And it was Mike who was in charge of all of that. Uh, but he spends his time now really. Uh, he punches hard on all kinds of issues, um, and I, I won't get into all of that, except let me just say he's a, he has a broad spectrum of expertise, and I've asked him this morning because there's so much to discuss. Mike, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me, Sandy. Yeah, let, you know what? The first thing I'd like to talk to you about, actually, is something you just wrote about, and this I didn't tell you we are going to talk about this, but since you wrote about it, I'm guessing you can talk about it. It's uh, March 11th, which is, what, three days ago, marked one year since Merrick Garland was sworn in as attorney general. You have a piece uh, in the Daily Caller uh, where you you think that that's been a problem. I think most of us would agree. But what do you think about his record, and what was the point you were trying to make in the Daily Caller article? Well, you know, when when Judge Merrick Garland was up for nomination, I actually very seriously considered endorsing him because I thought he would be you know, obviously he'd be a more liberal, but it's a Democrat president. This, but I thought this would be the adult in the room if uh, for the for the Biden uh, or yeah for the Biden Justice Department, and he's turned out to be anything but that. And that has been clearly uh, demonstrated in his first year in office. The biggest problem with uh, with the Attorney General is he appointed radical deputies uh, to uh, to serve in his Justice Department. Benita Gupta is the number three at the Justice Department, the Associate Attorney General, and she oversees the entire uh, civil side of the Justice Department, civil rights, civil antitrust, all the civil litigating divisions. And then Kristen Clark is the uh, head or the, the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights. And so she's in charge of all the civil rights law enforcement in the, in the department. And these two uh, senior Justice Department officials are radical activist and they have been for a long time and uh, and that radical activism has really uh, permeated the justice department it has made the justice department just a partisan organization that's just out of control you know mike i thought i felt the same way you know i'm not uh, i don't have a legal background to make such judgments but i certainly had the same impression of merrick garland he was kind of like milk toast and as i know you will i you will recall some people might not recall he was the uh, the nominee for the Supreme Court that the the left carps about because uh, Mitch McConnell stalled that uh, that nomination and so they feel like he was still he, he him that that seat was stolen from him but oh my goodness I'm not sure I hear your explanation and I certainly Jay Christian Adams is a good friend and we talked a great deal about the nominee the radical nominees in the Justice Department but honestly. You cannot kind of explain away Merrick Garland's vitriol when he went after January 6th participants, when he labeled, you know, America's parents domestic terrorists. 
really? I mean, he's like, he's into it. He doesn't sound like he's dispassionate yeah. when he makes those points. Your thoughts about that? No, I mean, it's, it's, look, I've said about January 6th all along that there are three categories of people who are there. There are the, the uh, people who showed up, even if you think they're misguided, even if you think they're wrong, if they're peacefully protesting outside, they are 100% protected. The people who trespassed in the, into the Capitol should be treated, uh, you know, with trespassing and the people who were violent should be treated more harshly. But this, this idea that there was some organized insurrection and that we're going to use this insurrection to go after every one of your political opponents, that's, that is un-American. It's disgusting. Uh, the January 6th commission in Congress is just on a partisan witch hunt. They have their two... Uh, you know, spurned Republicans, Republicans in name only, uh, Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney. It's just the whole thing is disgusting. It's overblown. It's amazing to me that they want to put all these all this time and resources hunting down every grandmother who took selfies in the in the Capitol. Yet after the the uh, uh, after George Floyd was killed, we let our cities get destroyed. We let people get murdered. Uh, in Portland, in the federal courthouse, it was destroyed on a nightly basis. The federal courthouse was destroyed on a nightly basis. Uh, in the uh, in the Trump White House, the, the Secret Service guard station was torched. Uh, the St. John's Church was torched. Uh, Senator Rand Paul was attacked when he was leaving the White House. And then, you know, what did the Justice Department do for those people? Almost nothing. Yeah, and I think about... Um you know, I think about the pettiness of uh, one of the things that um, Attorney General Barr said in that interview with Jake Tapper. I bet. Did you watch that by chance? I did not. Okay. All right. Well, then, you know what? I should I play this. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't watch Jake Tapper. I don't want to say that. <laughs> well, I don't generally either, but because I have to do this job, I do. <laughs> I want to I play this clip for you. I believe this is the right one. I'm sorry it uh, just came in the box here for me, but this is 17. And he, uh, Bill Barr is talking about he's trying to make a point that uh, President Trump is really petty. But in the process of making that point, um, it reminds me of what you just said, and I hope this is the right clip. This is 17. Let's listen. We played that already? All right. Well, maybe that's not in there. All right. Well, sorry. He starts well, the interview I'll by— this to... Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just well... going to say, I'll tell you this, Sandy. I was, I was very disappointed by Bill Barr and his lack of leadership in responding to these George, George Floyd riots, right? Oh, I, I mean. Know. It was stunning to me, and I was pushing his aides very hard to do more uh, during this. And, you know, I think they ended up, like, arresting 300 people, but there should have been thousands of arrests around the country. And why wasn't there investigations looking into who was actually funding all of this and organizing all this? Uh, it's not like pallets of bricks just show up on the street corner out of nowhere. You know, the thing, the clip that I, that I can't identify here is uh, he's talking to Jake, and uh, Barr is saying that Trump was uh, reaming him and whoever else was in the room about not doing anything. All these riots were taking place outside the White House, uh, all this destruction. Well, they didn't. he didn't put it that way. You can imagine Jake didn't put it that way. Uh, but we know what was happening. We watched that. We watched the burning of St. John's, you know. And Trump is reaming them for doing that. He says, you're weak, you're cowardly, what's the matter with you? And Barr laughs at that and, and uh, cites that as an example of Trump's pettiness. 
That's what I wanted you to hear. Well, and that, and, that you, and that's, that's, that just makes me so angry to hear that because the president is the uh, head of the executive branch. And I know people don't believe this, but he actually is in charge of the attorney general. The attorney general actually reports to the president of the United States. And as the chief law enforcement officer of the United States, Bill Barr should have been enforcing our laws. And, you know, he thought it was petty and laughing about it that, you know, there was billions of dollars and many deaths caused by these George Floyd riots and nothing was done about it or very little was done about it. I know it's just uh, it's very upsetting. It really is. And that re- that brings me to this next thing I want to talk to you about. Several um, attorneys, probably friends of yours, friends of mine, too, like John Eastman, Cleta Mitchell, uh, any attorney associated with president or any law firm, really, after I'm not sure the, the timeline there, but probably the last few months of President Trump's. Uh, time in office, maybe that might be right after the election, were targeted with really, I could say destruction because it's virtual destruction. Uh, Cleta had to resign from, well, she was forced to resign. She was a partner in Foley and Lardner, I think it's called, in D.C. Uh, but now there is uh, actually an assault against these attorneys. And I wanted to ask you to explain that, Mike, what's happening uh, to those that felt uh, that President Trump was right about certain things that supported him in different issues. What's happening to them? Yeah, it's disgusting what's happening to them. There are more than 100 Republican attorneys across the country now that these left-wing activists in Washington, D.C. are going after for ethics violations uh, for representing people who challenged the 2020 election. And I just want to remind these left-wing activists, this is a very interesting standard because, uh, you know, attorneys take on controversial clients all the time, and uh, it shouldn't subject them to uh, being disbarred and being canceled. So if the Democrats want to play that game, let's look at one of their attorneys who's up for the Supreme Court right now. We have Katanji Brown-Jackson, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. When she was a federal defender, she defended uh, terrorists, right? And so she went out of her way to defend Gitmo terrorists. You can say, well, she's a federal defender. That's her job. They defend terrorists. They defend murderers. Okay, well, uh, you know, maybe. But, I, you know, it's my understanding that she actually sought out these Gitmo terrorists when she was a federal defender. But when she went to uh, Morrison and Forrester, MOFO, the, the big law firm uh, that she went to after her government service, she went out of her way. She, I was a I was in private practice for uh, a decade, and you have very limited time as a private practice lawyer, especially at a big law firm. And so, when you're taking on pro bono or free representation of matters, you're pretty careful about what matters you take because you know it's something that you have to care about or you have to have an interest in it. And Katanji Brown Jackson, when she was at Mofo, she went out of her way to provide free representation to get Mo terrorists uh, and. She took this representation. She she advocated for Gitmo terrorists all the way to the Supreme Court. And in 2008, Justice Kennedy joined the four liberals to say that the Gitmo terrorists had uh, had these habeas rights that obviously they didn't have, but liberals just uh, made it up. And since that time, there have been uh, since there's a New York Post article that came out last year. 729 of these detainees have been released. 229 of these detainees have returned to terrorist activities, and 12 of these detainees have killed six Americans 
soldiers and civilians. So that is the result of Katanji Brown Jackson's pro bono representation at MOFO is uh, the, about a third of these detainees have returned to terrorist activities and six Americans have been killed by 12 uh, released detainees. So if we're going to talk about taking on controversial clients, Katanji Brown Jackson has taken on terrorists who kill Americans and continue to kill Americans. Yeah, let me just, uh, because, you know, so much time has passed since 9-11, Mike, I don't need to explain to you that a lot of people, they don't even hardly know what Gitmo is. And I'm not going to go into a long explanation, but I'll just say one thing. One of those Gitmo detainees is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was the mastermind of that World Trade Center uh, attack with the 3,000 Americans that were killed. And he's still alive, and he's still at Gitmo. And that's the kind of people. They were rounded up from all over the world when we went to, to war in uh, in um, Iraq and Iran. Iraq, not Iran. Uh, and uh, we gathered up the worst of the worst and put them in Gitmo. And they've gotten fat. Uh, they've worked out. And they've been well cared for and pampered. And that's the kind of people that Katanji uh, wants to, did defend voluntarily. And now she wants to be a Supreme Court justice. And before we move to her, because I do want to, <laughs> I want to say a little bit more about this. My understanding is that the the organization coming after people like John Eastman and Cleta Mitchell, Cleta, for her work on the the uh, election, uh, because she is an she's an expert at this, and she's really devoted her time to rooting out the um, all the, the things that have happened around the country that were that broke election law, and so that's why they're after her. And with John Eastman, uh, he suggested to President Trump in a memo that um, that Vice President Pence did not have to accept the electors presented to him on that day, that there could be some sort of a delay until the states worked out their own uh, disputes about their electors, and now they're targeting him. And I guess, you know, I could, I'd say, I'm sorry, Mike, I'm talking more than I want to because I want you to talk, but I do know that John Eastman in particular has had, he's been having to go through like thousands of email um, because they are, they've subpoenaed everything that all of his private correspondence, uh, and it's been turned over by his uh, law school. This is a problem, and they're trying to disbar them too, right? Yeah, I mean, they're, these are these are they're trying to disbar all these attorneys. I would ask, you know, let's look at Democrat attorneys. Look, look, let's look at Mark Elias and his former law firm Perkins, Perkins Cooley. When you know John Durham's coming out with pretty damning evidence that they colluded to spy on. Uh, then presidential candidate Donald Trump, then, the, then they used the intel agencies, they colluded with, with the U.S. intel agencies to spy on then president Donald Trump. So, I mean, if that doesn't uh, cause disbarment hearings, I don't know what would. And this, But this particular uh, entity that's attacking these attorneys is called 65 Project, as I understand it. And its advisory board includes people like Melissa Moss a Democratic consultant, and a former senior Clinton administration official. Why do the Clintons have their names over everything? They have, they're, behind, they're behind so much of this stuff that happens. Of course. And David Brock, a founder of Media Matters, is part of this too, going after these attorneys yeah, to David, try to disbar them. Yeah, and also uh, the former Senate, the former uh, majority leader, Tom Daschle, the Democrat from South Dakota. I mean, it's, it's a who's who of left-wing whack jobs. Do you think they'll be successful, Mike? They're going to run ads in the swing you know, states and all kinds of stuff. I, you know, the problem is, is a lot of these state bars are so Democrat and so, uh, you know, they're so partisan. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that they're 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 going to be successful in this way. They're going to make it so miserable for these Republican attorneys that many of these Republican attorneys are not going to want to get involved with this stuff again. That and that's that's the goal. Well, it's working. I mean, it's it's yeah. making life miserable for these people who are patriots, and of course, it's taking hundreds of hours, well, maybe I should say tens of hours, I don't know, away from them actually doing the work that they feel they're called to do uh, because they're having to go through well, their email. Know, maybe people need to respond to this. I mean, I, I think that if attorneys are trying to interfere with another attorney's attorney-client relationship, that seems to be an ethical problem for the attorney trying to interfere. So maybe people need to punch back and file ethics complaints, disbarment complaints against these attorneys who are trying to interfere with the attorney-client relationship of another attorney. Yeah, I agree with you. I, and I actually do think there's some countersuits. I think John Eastman has fired one. I'm not sure what it, you know, what it involves. Also, you know, Mike, there's that whole issue of, of the January 6th committee uh, being not following its charter or not following, not, you know, being illegally constituted. And some are using that defense uh, uh, to say I'm not appearing before cooperating. What do you think about that? The problem is, is you know, I, I ran, like you talked about at the beginning of the show, I ran the, the nominations unit for the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, and we had a lot of people who ignored a lot of our requests when I was there. And we made, for example, we made several, we made four refer- referrals to the Justice Department for people who lied to the committee or, or obstructed our investigation, four. Chairman, then Chairman Chuck Grassley made four, including uh, two against Michael Avenatti and um, uh, two against uh, Julie Swetnick, or excuse me, Michael Avenatti and Julie Swetnick, and then others who lied to the committee during the Kavanaugh proceedings. We didn't even get a response. We still have not gotten a response from the Justice Department from those four criminal referrals yet. Uh, if the Democrats make a criminal referral, the, the Justice Department says, how high do you want us to jump, right? So they'll prosecute for Democrat committees, but they don't even respond to, to Republican committees. So you have to be careful. I mean, it is a partisan Justice Department with Merrick Garland running the show, and many of these line attorneys at the Justice Department are Democrats. So they'll, they'll gladly prosecute anyone who defies the January 6th Commission. It's it's a mess, and I, I guess part of what I would want to ask you. Uh, let me ask you this before I I would I want to talk about a little bit more about Katanji Brown Jackson, and I just have to ask if you can stay with us a little bit longer. Are you able to, Mike? I don't want to keep you too long. Yeah, here. of course. Okay, of course. I uh, then then you guys, let's take a break, and when we come back, I want to talk about the nomination with more uh, specificity. I I'm real curious. Um, it looks like her nomination is going to go through, and I, I don't quite understand that. And so I want to ask you about that, Mike. Um, and you know the culture of Washington. You know the, the gentleman's agreement about judicial nominations. Uh, but I want to explore that and whether it should be still valid. Uh, our, our guest is Mike Davis. He's the founder and president of the Article Three Project. He's the former chief counsel of nominations to the Senate Judiciary Committee, which was chaired by Chuck Grassley when the Republicans uh, had the, the majority. And we'll come right back and talk about the Supreme Court nomination because it's going to be coming up, I think, pretty quickly here. Uh, and she's making the rounds talking to senators. And so it looks like we might have a new justice. And I'm not sure we're going to be ready for what she's going to bring. This is Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk.
Hello, I'm Don Hawkins, here to tell you about Encouragement Live, 55 minutes of industrial-strength radio encouragement featuring resourceful guests plus practical biblical insights to help you face life's challenges. We'll be taking your phone calls, so plan to join us for Encouragement Live, Saturdays at 7.05 p.m. Central, 8.05 p.m. Eastern, here on American Family Radio. Hello, I'm Sam Rohr, President of the American Pastors Network, a growing national network of pastors committed to the authority of Scripture and preaching the whole counsel of God. We believe biblical obedience is the foundation for revival and impacting our culture for Christ is our duty. For too long, the pulpits of America have been silent on the important issues such as marriage and family and assault on our liberty. Join us in the battle for truth on Stand in the Gap weekend, Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. on American Family Radio, and visit us at AmericanPastorsNetwork.org. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. According to a recent study published by the Christian Post, 76.3% of all abortions are obtained by, quote, God-fearing women, unquote, with 68.7% who identified themselves as Christian women and 18% of all abortions obtained by self-described born-again or evangelical women. A corresponding CareNet study found that many women with unplanned pregnancies go silently from the church pew to the abortion clinic, convinced the church would gossip rather than help. America's greatest need is repentance. When the hearts of the American people turn to God, everything else will be impacted. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. Here are Tim and Riley Wildman for the AFA Foundation. Riley, what is your title? The director of AFA Foundation. One of the best ways you can have income for the rest of your life and know that uh, you will be supporting the ministry of American Family Association is to... To give a gift to American Family Association and American Family Radio. Do you also deal with people who want to leave AFA in their wills? Yes, sir. That's exactly why they call. And that's why we also have another option besides a charitable gift annuity. People sometimes also call and do an outright gift or also leave us in their will. Now, when anyone calls in and asks to talk to you, ladies, will all of them talk in a Southern accent like you do? Yes, they will. Call Riley Wildman at the AFA Foundation, 800-326-4543, extension 345, or visit afafoundation.net. This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. The reason Presidents Reagan and Trump practiced the national security policy they called peace through strength is that it works. Alternatives like Joe Biden's, which might be called peace through groveling, never have. Look no further than Team Biden's maniacal pursuit of a new nuclear deal with the mullahs of Iran. There appears to be no limit to the concessions and humiliations the Iranian regime is prepared to demand and that Biden and company are willing to accommodate. Even a salvo of ballistic missiles launched from Iran into the immediate vicinity of a U.S. consulate in Iraq is no impediment to further appeasement in the name of preventing Tehran from getting the bomb. Unfortunately, there is no hope, none, that Ayatollahs committed for over four decades to bringing death to America will forego the most efficient means of inflicting it. Enough already. This is Frank Gaffney. 
Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Sandy Rios back with you. Well, we do have an appointee for uh, for, uh, Supreme Court, and it's uh, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. We've talked about this before, Uh, but um, Mike is really the expert here. He is the uh, one who shepherded through uh, Brett Kavanaugh's nomination and hosts of other judges uh, when uh, President Trump was still president. And, you know, it just seems like, oh, so yesterday. It was like, what, 18 months ago? I'm not sure exactly, but um, it, uh, it seems like ages ago. But Mike is the expert. Right now, uh, Judge Katanji Brown is making her way around uh, the Senate meeting with all the various Republican judges. In fact, the Washington Post has an article titled, For Jackson, Path to Supreme Court is Paved with Smiles and Small Talk. Mike, you know all about this process. Uh, how would you describe what's happening uh, in among Republicans meeting with uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson right now? Look, I think that Democrats made a huge mistake by going so scorched or against President Trump's judicial nominees, especially Justice Kavanaugh, but they also tried to go scorched earth against Justice Amy Coney Barrett by attacking her and her family. And so I don't think Republicans should go scorched earth by any means, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't do their constitutional duty to provide advice and consent. And that means very thoroughly and rigorously vetting this a Supreme Court nominee and not treating her any differently from other any other Supreme Court nominee just because she's a black woman. I think that uh, you know that, that there's, there's a very high bar for Supreme Court nominees, and they need to make sure that this nominee meets that very high bar. And if you look at her record, you know she's been she went to Harvard, she went to Harvard Law School, she clerked on the Supreme Court, so she has those those good Ivy League and uh, Sterling credentials. She was a district court judge for eight years where she wrote many opinions. She wrote about 500 opinions uh, of note. She's written, she, she wrote many opinions that got reversed on appeal. And let me give you an example of two of those. In 2015, uh, as a district court judge, she went out of her way to convolute the Freedom of Information Act to protect from public disclosure Hillary Clinton's press secretary's emails, work emails that he was using his private email to uh, for work email. And uh, those are clearly subject to Freedom of Information Act with the FOIA. Yet Katanji, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson said somehow that those emails didn't have to be turned over. So she went out of her way to protect Hillary Clinton and her to- uh, one of her top aides for embar- uh, from embarrassment. Then if you fast forward four years, in 2019, Judge 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 Jackson rule. She eviscerated 230 years of constitutional law on executive privilege, going back to George Washington, and ruled that President Trump's White House counsel Don McGahn had to testify against him. And that is just a laughable reading of executive privilege. There are two people in the White House who absolutely have executive privilege with their communications with the president. That's the White House chief of staff and the White House counsel. And for Judge Jackson to rule that the White House counsel somehow doesn't have executive privilege is laughable. And she got reversed by the D.C. Circuit, uh, including many judges on the D.C. Circuit, or Democrat judges on the D.C. Circuit. So goes out of your way. she goes out of her way under FOIA to, to protect Hillary and then goes out of her way on constitutional law to get Donald Trump. So it's just a troubling sign about her record as a district court judge. She's only been on the D.C. Circuit, her current job, for eight months. 
and she's only written two opinions. And so her appellate, her record as an appellate judge is very thin, right? So that's why her nomination hearing starting next Monday is going to be of critical importance to figure out whether she's up to the job. You know, I'm confused about something because um, is does she believe that the Constitution is a so-called living document, meaning it can be morphed into anything that she wants it to be? And that's, you know, where Ruth Bader Ginsburg was and the rest of the leftists on the court. Uh, or does she believe it should be um, to interpreted according to the founders what they had in mind when they wrote it? She seems to contradict herself on that, Mike. What do you think is really true here? I think she's a left-wing judicial activist, and that's pretty obvious by her yeah. ruling, her two rulings that I just discussed, the 2015 FOIA ruling protecting Hillary Clinton, the 2019 executive privilege ruling going after Donald Trump. I think it's pretty clear that she's a left-wing judicial activist, uh, and I think she'll be like that on the court. And if you go back to 2005, Chuck Schumer's the number one Senate Democrat. He said that judicial philosophy and ideology are the most crucial determination for senators to make when they're when they're when they're vetting Supreme Court justices. And then Dick Durbin, who's now the number two Senate Democrat and the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, said that that senators should probe into key issues like executive power and abortion to make sure that these nominees are not outside of the judicial mainstream. So we're going to use, I think, Republican senators should use the Schumer standard and the Durbin standard to really dig in and figure out what is her judicial philosophy. And if you, if Republicans, she she may be qualified in every other way, but if she does not share, share our constitutionalist judicial philosophy, if she's not going to follow the law as written and understood by the people at the time of its enactment, Republicans should not vote for her. She, well, she's I a left-wing judicial activist. Go no, ahead. Sorry. Well, I, I totally agree. And here's the thing I want to, you know, there's this like gentleman's agreement, and I suppose there's a place for that. <laughs> we used to have them. They used to work. But there's a gentleman's agreement in the Senate that if a left-wing justice steps down from the Supreme Court, then it's okay that the uh, party in power suppose a, a, a appoint a left-wing justice to replace them, the same with a conservative. And so they go back and forth and maintain the balance of the court, as they tell us. You know, the, the Democrats threw that out. You know, during the Trump administration, they persecuted, as we well know, you've just rehearsed uh, Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. Why do the Republicans feel so bound to the gentleman's agreement? I don't understand when they have such a, you know, a obvious uh, candidate who will not, it seems to me, interpret the Constitution as written. Why do they feel bound to follow that protocol? Because we're stupid, and that's why. And, I, and if you go back and look, we have, if you look at, there is a 30-year pattern and practice of Democrats. They, they claim that they want more diversity on the federal bench. They claim that they want more women and minorities on the federal, federal bench. But they have a 30-year pattern and practice of viciously attacking, smearing women and minority uh, judicial nominees from Republican presidents going all the way all the way back to Clarence Thomas. They they attacked Clarence Thomas thirty years ago, made up bogus allegations about sexual harassment from Anita Hill, who's clearly lying, clearly lying at the time, clearly lying still, and that's just continued. They're currently calling for investigations against against Clarence Thomas because of his wife's political activity. She's been a political activist her entire adult life, including before 
He went on to the bench. And Democrats are trying to go after Clarence Thomas because of his wife's political activities, like somehow that like he owns his wife. And I always say that Clarence Thomas long, long ago escaped the Democrats' plantation. Jenny Thomas doesn't work in the Democrats' kitchen. She never did. And Clarence Thomas doesn't own his wife. And so it's just ridiculous what the Democrats do to Republican nominees and, and and Republican judges. Look what they've done. Look what they did to Robert Bork. They went after him. They, yes. they It became a verb, borking someone. If you bork a judge, they unfairly smeared him. Uh, uh, Miguel Estrada, they, they filibustered what, who would have been the first Hispanic judge on the D.C. Circuit and probably the first Hispanic Supreme Court justice. If you look at uh, Judge Janice Rogers Brown, yes. the Democrats <laughs> filibustered this black woman. She was a black, uh, black female Supreme Court justice, they filibustered her for two years to the D.C. Circuit. Uh, that included Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, Dick Durbin, all filibustered her for two years to the D.C. Circuit. And then when she was finally put on the D.C. Circuit, uh, then Senator Joe Biden came out and publicly vowed to filibuster her nomination if George W. Bush elevated the first black woman to the Supreme Court. Yeah, this idea that they care about, it's all nonsense they don't it care is about nonsense they care about power mike i was the president of concerned women for america when all of that was happening it was in not a few judicial uh, judiciary committee hearings i had a front row seat to the, the, the what they did it was horrible <clears throat> excuse me so the question remains you know what will republicans do and there's the music so we can't thoroughly answer it but i think they're going to let her through to you what do you think well I think she's going to get through, but you know what? It, we may have dodged the bullet because Justice Leandra Kruger would have been more potent against conservatives because she actually would have been able, been able to pick off the Chief Justice and and uh, and, and uh, Kavanaugh from time to time. Just, just, a justice, a Justice Jackson almost never will. Interesting. All right. Well, hey, it's great to talk to you. Thank you, Mike, for giving us your expertise and for loving this country enough to put up with all of that. Uh, Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.